0: Welcome to episode 1797 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindberg of the Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Just us today for the first time in a while. <laughs> Been talking to a lot of guests lately.
1: Yeah, it's so quiet in here.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I've got some banter, we've got some emails. I guess we should note that. Technically there's news by the barest definition of news, (laughs) which is that there was a labor meeting of sorts and reportedly nothing of note happened at it, but I guess it's technically of note that it happened. It sounds like from all of the tweets we've seen so far, and we're recording on Thursday afternoon, so there may be more details by the time you hear this, but everyone who reported on it says that essentially nothing happened, but that nothing was expected to happen. So I guess Bob Nightingale described it as the first bargaining session in 42 days between MLB and the MLBPA ended Thursday, and just as expected, there was little movement. The timetable is unknown when they will meet again. Evan Drellick said MLB's proposal today didn't encourage the players. A couple small changes. Expectations weren't high going in. So in that regard, the proposal actually went mostly as expected. And then Jeff Passan sounded, I guess, the most alarming note, perhaps, in that he said, baseball labor update, there is no deal. There was never going to be one today. MLB made a proposal. The reaction among the players was not positive. Few on either side expected it to be. The question is how soon the MLBPA counters. And then the ominous last sentence, spring training starting on time is in peril. (laughs) Emphasis mine.
1: I mean, yeah, like it was always in peril.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's been in peril for a while.
1: I am struggling, Ben. Here's Mm -hmm. how. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Let me count the ways. I've been struggling with how nervous to feel and how different from our prior expectations this is. Versus how in line with our prior expectations this is. Because I don't Mm -hmm. think that we really were terribly optimistic that spring training would start on time. And I don't know that we were terribly optimistic that the season would start on time. I think there has been this sense for a while now that this will get taken down to the wire and we will probably be at least a week or two late when it comes to the regular season. And how much you know, how many games that ends up meaning for 2022 is sort of gonna be some function of how late we go and then whether we get expanded playoffs in in this season, right, because in theory, we could just push everything back, but that gets harder to do if we're having to accommodate another round of games. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I'm trying to, to decide if I feel more anxious today in a way that is a rational response to stimulus or if I am just as anxious as I was, or if I should feel more anxious than I do, which as we've discussed before, I have a seemingly limitless capacity <laughs> for. So I don't know, I don't know how to feel about it. It has been sort of a bad news day away from baseball, and so I'm trying not to have that interact too much with this, <laughs> but it, it seems like we are unlikely to have pitchers and catchers reporting on time because they're supposed to report like a month from now, and we don't, right. have, we don't have anything resembling a deal done and i i also struggled to know like if aristotle were judging me today that's the direction we're going right now we'll do other <laughs> stuff in a minute but here's where we are at this particular moment and and was sort of like assessing my goodness as a person would he be disappointed in me would he think that i was sort of living a good life and and doing virtuous acts because on the one hand i don't want a deal that is unfair and i think that as we have discussed many times on this podcast there are a great many things that the sport needs to do to sort of course correct on the balance of power between owners and and the players on the sort of entertainment value of the product on the field on how generous or exploitative it is it is being to any number of people involved with it we have we have work to do but also i'm afraid of not having a job so like (laughs) you know i and i don't think that it works anywhere close to being in that kind of mindset. But as I have previously noted, my capacity for anxiety is limitless uh you know i am i am Lindsay lohan in uh mean girls so yeah i don't quite know how to feel which means that i am just defaulting to feeling terrible but i would be i'm persuadable i'm not i'm not so far gone that i'm not persuadable so do you want to try to persuade me that i uh don't need to feel terrible and that i can balance the uh, demands of my job and my desire for continued employment with my desire to be like a good person yeah i didn't prep you for this ben but <laughs> do you want to make a case for my soul today on effectively wild
0: <laughs> as the podcast resident optimist or at least non-pessimist i i guess i could try i felt <laughs> fairly optimistic that we wouldn't lose games and I don't know that I have reached the point of pessimism about that. I'm not optimistic about spring training starting on time. I don't know how much spring training is really required to start the season on time or how much later they could start the season and still get the full slate of games in. I think what's worrisome is... You mentioned this coming down to the wire. I don't know where the wire is anymore exactly. The wire could be in any number of places because when there was a CBA expiration deadline, we knew where that wire was. It wasn't a real wire. They just tripped that wire and kept going, but it was at least a deadline. And right. now there isn't a deadline in the same sense. There are various deadlines. There's pitchers and catchers reporting. There's the first game of spring training. There's opening day. Every day is a deadline of sorts, but there isn't exactly one agreed upon day. So that's kind of concerning because if there isn't one unified deadline that everyone is aware of, then you might have multiple parties with different levels of urgency. And I don't know that you're as likely to get something done so the fact that they went 42 days without talking i don't know how negative i should feel about that because on the one hand it seems like well you can talk all you want but nothing actually productive gets done until it really comes down to wherever the wire is so if they had been talking regularly and exchanging slight amendments to their proposals for the past 42 days would we be any closer to actually having a deal i don't know but it is kind of disconcerting that after more than a month to think of things, it sounds like, based on what we know right now, that MLB was basically just like, yeah, we were good with the previous proposal, more or less. Right. And here are a couple tweaks, maybe, and that the players, unsurprisingly, weren't having that. So something's got to give clearly and i don't know that the owners are all that willing to give these days i suppose that they suffer more from missing spring training than the players potentially just because the players are not paid during spring training and teams do make money off of those games so let's hope that that greases the wheels at some point here soon so not Panicking yet from the perspective of, yes, it would be nice for there to be a full season and for us to have something to say on this podcast, (laughs) but it is getting to the point where the clouds are getting darker and they're gathering.
1: Yeah. And then like, how do I plan an editorial calendar, Ben?
0: Yeah. Good luck with that. Do we do season preview podcast? Right. When do we do our (laughs) season preview? When do we do that? Yeah. (laughs) I have no idea.
1: Can someone like send smoke signals (laughs) and or wink at us to indicate which team will sign Carlos Correa? And then we'll do that one last. (laughs) Sure. You know, we'll just do it last and then it'll be fine. We could start, you know, soon question mark Mm -hmm. i mean these are not the most important aspects of this right when the when the progression of the sport and people's livelihoods like the players livelihoods are involved these sort of trickle down issues are i think we're able to put them in their proper perspective right and like i think that the jobs of the people who work in baseball media are important but i i can appreciate how we don't want to just rush to get a deal done to like make sure that i know when to run positional power rankings that's silly <laughs> but it's not unimportant to me personally and to yep. the people who listen to this podcast and to the mm-hmm. writers who i'm gonna have to say hey you you have to write 30 blurbs about a, a billion dudes just like mm-hmm. so many guys so I think that we can acknowledge the strain that the uncertainty places on any number of people while while not also wishing for a bad deal. We can do both of those things at once. And I'm just here to say, like, Aristotle, get off my back, man. I'm doing my best. I know that living your good life is a matter of habituation and practice. I gave that lecture at Wisconsin. I know the rules, but I'm just very stress today so anyway I guess we should answer some emails
0: yeah we'll get to some emails Uh, if there's any additional detail then we can discuss it next time but it doesn't sound as if we're missing much relevant information here and The winter is really testing the contention that no news is good news, at least when it comes to hosting a baseball podcast. But I do have some other stuff to say. And the good news, I guess, for MLB.com is that the league's official website can now run articles about John Lester because John Lester is no longer an active Major League Baseball player. He announced his retirement. And I just wanted to say, obviously, incredible career. Just so many reasons to remember him. Long and successful career. He won three World Series. He was a five-time All-Star. He beat cancer. He pitched almost 3,000 innings at a well-above-average clip. He pitched almost another full season's worth of postseason innings with like a a two-and-a-half ERA, which is really incredible. So any number of reasons to celebrate and remember John Lester. And yet, I think when it all comes down to it, the thing that I will most remember about John Lester is that for a while there, he could not throw to first base. Yeah, (laughs) That's the lasting legacy of John Lester for me, I think. One of many, but probably the most salient thing about John Lester in my mind, the thing that I'll remember about John Lester on my deathbed, if I remember anything, is the fact that for a while there, he could not throw to first base. And we got a ton of podcast fodder about that at the time. And there was a thread in our Facebook group the other day, which was really fun. It was about like things that happened in baseball that we would have talked about ad nauseum on the podcast if the podcast had existed at the time. So mm-hmm. pre-effectively wild news and we could get some banter or maybe a whole episode out of that thread one of these days, because there were a lot of fun suggestions. But that is a a perfect example of an effectively wild story that tickled my fancy for three or four years there. And it was fascinating for a few different reasons, I think. First, the fact that he had extremely selective yips, which I didn't really realize was a thing. I mean, he knew... Pitchers sometimes get the yips and can't throw the ball to home plate. We know catchers sometimes get the yips and can't throw the ball back to the pitcher. We know that infielders sometimes get the yips and can't throw the ball to first base. But to be a pitcher who can throw to home plate perfectly fine, but not be able to lob the ball over to first base, that broke my brain in a new and different way. And it was also something that was not, like, painful to talk about in the way that the yips often is because when the yips comes up, I mean, it's a fascinating subject, but you also just feel for the person so much because they're suffering so clearly and their whole livelihood is at stake. And with Lester, I mean, it probably bothered him and it affected him somewhat, but he was still a pitcher and still a really successful pitcher. He just couldn't throw the ball to first base, so it was so strange And it seemed like it should matter so much more than it did. And that was the most perplexing thing to me. And I think he was able to transcend this issue... Because for one thing, he didn't allow a lot of base runners in the first place. And for another, he was quick to home plate. And David Ross was his catcher for a while. And he had a good arm and he was good at backpicking. So that would keep runners closer. So there were ways that he got around it. And it was always fascinating to me that it didn't matter to him more. And yet, runners should have taken advantage of that more than they did. (laughs) And it is just wild that they didn't. And I remember... Jeff Sullivan writing about that multiple times at Fancrafts because it fascinated him too. I mean, this was something that came to light before that AO Wildcard game yes. in. 2014 and it wasn't until like 2018 or it it was years before he finally figured it out or like developed his bounce pass throw over to first base that he kind of compensated I mean there were years there where everyone knew about this and there were like big playoff games and you would see the runners threatening to go and dancing off first base and they just would rarely go I mean occasionally but they did not run nearly as wild as you would think that they would and It was always the question of why don't they go more? And maybe it was partly sympathy, but I think Jeff ultimately developed the theory that they just like couldn't internalize the fact. Right. (laughs) that he couldn't throw to first base like they knew it it was in the scouting report maybe the first base coach was telling them that but once they were on the base and they're looking at a lefty who looks like he's about to throw over there they just couldn't bring themselves to accept that he wouldn't and that they could take really as long a lead as they wanted and run with impunity and so it just never happened and that will fascinate me to the day I die probably
1: submit that even after he figured out the bounce pass thing they still should have run on him more than they did like they Mm -hmm. still should have run on him more than they did it is one of the it is one of the best things that has ever happened in the history of the (laughs) sport i'm not overstating it it ranks in a in a profound way it should be you know what like mlb.com you need you need some content go and (laughs) inspect this mystery more i know that jeff wrote about it you know, at length. But there is mm-hmm. still grist in this mill because it is yeah. one of the wildest things that has ever happened. And I wonder I imagine that there were a couple of categories of sort of reluctance, right? There were the people who were just not base runners anyway, right? And so they thought, look, even though this strange circumstance exists and even though I, in theory, if I'm going to be able to run on anyone, it is going to be him. I'm just not I'm not a. I'm not a vroom vroom guy, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not the vroom vroom guy and I uh, Uh, don't want to look silly because I will say that in that stretch where he just really, he literally couldn't throw to first base, can you imagine how you'd feel if you had gotten caught? Like, can you imagine (laughs) if you're the guy who still manages just to somehow get caught? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you're never, that's in the first line of your obituary, really. Like, (laughs) it's the thing that travels with you, you know, from clubhouse to clubhouse just forever. So Mm -hmm. there's like that category of the guy. And then I'm sure that there were some guys who were convinced and had like a Carrie Matheson like, you know, color coded board in their apartments mm-hmm. that like this was all a long con, right? This was a bit And Mm -hmm. he was waiting to deploy it until the ideal moment. And so if you were the guy who was going to, you know, run in that situation, then, oh, no, John was going to get you because he was just committed to the bid. It was a years long operation. Mm -hmm. And then there were the people who were just, I don't know, cowards, maybe like, do we want to call them that? That seems like too strong a judgment, (laughs) but I I just don't. It's the best thing. It's one of the best things that's ever happened in the sport. So, Mm
0: -hmm. yeah, it really is. And I don't know how well it will be remembered because just looking at a few news articles. Articles about Lester's retirement. I mean, if I were writing them, I would say John Lester, the former major league pitcher who for a while there could not throw over to first base yes, and also was a five time all star and won three World Series and beat cancer, et cetera. I mean, that's the order of things that I would highlight in my first sentence or first paragraph of his baseball obituary. So I don't know that this will be remembered. I'm sure that future generations of baseball fans and future baseball podcast hosts will come across this yeah. somehow some and oh, then they yeah. will marvel at it the way that we did and maybe now that he is retired he'll be more open to revisiting it and talking about how that happened and how he got around it but it's really incredible i mean beating cancer way more personally significant and notable than beating first base pickoff attempt yips and yet it just really it boggles my mind to this day i remember doing an article for grantland i guess it was going into the 2015 season where i had like all of the makers of all of the various simulation software for baseball run the numbers for john lester if he could never throw to first base and They suggested that like it should make him significantly worse, maybe not as much worse as you would think, but it just didn't really seem to hold him back very much, and I love that. So thank you, John Lester, for all of the memories, but specifically for those.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. I have a technical question for you, Ben. Okay. And I don't know the answer to this, and it was relevant during the Kyle Seeger conversation, too. Are they officially able to retire? Like, they were... They were technically 40-man guys, right? They were 40. The the last that we knew of them, they were on a 40-man roster. And so... Are they able to retire Or does the paperwork not process Until the lockout is done I've heard conflicting answers on this question When I have asked team people And so I'm very curious Like, Because clearly like the Red Sox tweeted about John Lester And the Mariners right, tweeted yeah. about Kyle Seager
0: Teams in the league are, are treating active players Like the third rail So the fact that they are <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> treating and John Lester As someone they can mention That suggests that he is officially retired But otherwise I don't know
1: I don't know and so I I I could imagine imagine those teams going to the league and being like look you're not going to get sued by John Lester over a likeness issue he is retiring can we have an exception to this rule so that we do not seem like complete ghouls about like important franchise icons (laughs) being done playing the game in this moment when everyone thinks that baseball teams and their owners are ghouls like I could see there being an exception granted but I am curious from a technical transaction perspective if he is actually allowed to be retired or if he has to wait until the lockout to process the paperwork. I don't know the answer. And the team people I've asked have had conflicting reports. So I put it to our listeners. I don't know what I'm doing. It's been a weird feelings day, Ben. It's been a weird one.
0: <laughs> One more thing I wanted to mention related to our series last week, we talked to Cameron Grove in one of our episodes about measuring the unmeasurable. He was the astrophysicist who's done a lot of uh, pitching research on the side and other research, and we were talking about the times through the order penalty and the reasons for that. And I mentioned on that episode that one thing that I'd like to look into or or have someone else look into is whether there is some sort of reliever effect when relievers face the same team multiple times within a postseason series, whether they are worse because of the familiarity. And Cameron subsequently Ran those numbers and produced some analysis on that subject, which he tweeted and which I will link to on the show page. But he seemed to find that there is, in fact, a significant familiarity penalty for relievers in postseason series. So he looked at the stuff of the relievers and the expected run value based on the stuff and all of that based on the movement and velocity and and their pitch characteristics and that doesn't seem to suffer. So if they face the same team two or three times in the same series, their stuff is roughly the same, but their results get way worse, like significantly worse, especially the third time that the team sees that reliever in that same series. So that would suggest that in fact there is a familiarity effect for relievers that extends across games at least within the postseason. And then he did a little follow-up where he looked at regular season results, and it seems like there's probably something there too, maybe a little less pronounced. And there are a number of ways you could do this, and maybe it depends on how many days between outings there are and, you know, that kind of thing. But it does seem as if there's something to that, and this will bear further analysis. But if that effect holds up, then I wonder if that might actually affect strategy to some extent in the postseason if teams become aware of that, if it really is a significant factor, that Could be a good thing, I guess, if we want starters to go deeper into games, let's say. Then you'd have some incentive to have them stay in longer because you don't want to hurt yourself in a later game in the series by bringing in a reliever who might not need to pitch in that game, for instance. But very interesting. There does seem to be something there. And as I mentioned on that episode, I think I had previously studied a playoff familiarity effect for starting pitchers and found that as long as you're on full rest – there doesn't seem to be one, but that could be for any number of reasons. There are obviously more days between games for starting pitchers, and maybe they're just more resistant to the familiarity effect as it is because they have more pitches, etc. But does seem to be something to this, and that kind of matches my intuition, but maybe it matters even more than I thought.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a very interesting result. The degree degree of it, the magnitude of it did make me think this probably merits additional investigation, which I think Cameron, yes. you know, definitely conceded that there's more work to be done here. But it is a like really it was an interesting result. And I hope that it's one that he studies further, because I would be curious to see what some of the results of looking at those potential confounding variables you you mentioned leads to. But see, people should come on effectively well because we give mm-hmm. you interesting questions.
0: Yes, exactly. And I was also thinking, because of that Measuring the Unmeasurable series, that, you know, we talked a little bit about injuries and how so much of that is still unmeasurable, what causes injuries, what can prevent injuries. But I think if there's one piece of data that I wish we had, it would be better injury data, especially for past years, because I find that when I try to analyze a a past player's career – Often there's so little easily accessible about their injury records, right? And if you look at modern players, maybe you can find if they had a, an IL stint or maybe even baseball prospectus track some day-to-day injuries, for instance. But it's not easy to find. For past players, it's all but impossible to find yeah. them. I know that there are some old baseball encyclopedias, the Nefton-Cohen books, that did have some injury records for earlier eras, and I don't think those have been digitized anywhere, but I don't think they were all that detailed anyway, and I was thinking about this because – Craig Wright, the historian and sabermetrician in his excellent subscription newsletter, Pages from Baseball's Past, which I have plugged many times on this podcast. It's at baseballspast.com. He just did a little story on the premature decline of Jimmy Fox, who, of course, was one of the best players of all time and certainly had one of the best starts to his career of all time, but tailed off incredibly quickly in his early 30s. And there have been a a number of theories about why this happened and I was just reappreciating Jimmy Fox's early numbers because he was very much on pace to break Babe Ruth's all-time home run record. Yeah. I mean he started off so fast and granted Ruth really started as a hitter in earnest a little later because he came up as a pitcher primarily but Fox came up as a catcher and he was blocked by Mickey Cochran for a while so he didn't really have that huge a head start and through their age 32 season. I think Ruth had hit 416 homers and Fox has hit 500. And he also had a huge RBI lead if you care about that kind of thing He wasn't as good a hitter Overall he didn't get on base As often and Ruth hit for an even higher Average etc but power wise He was on track to Be perhaps the best home run hitter Of all time and certainly To eclipse Lou Gehrig potentially And then it just Sort of stopped he stopped Hitting homers he stopped hitting at all And then he stopped Playing Major League Baseball and He was uh, essentially out of the game at a fairly early age. I mean, he hit 500 homers through his age 32 season, which was 1940. And then after that, he hit a grand total of 34 homers. And really, it was 19 in one year. And then they just stopped coming, basically. And he was gone in a, a couple of years after that. And the theories that people have advanced for that in the past Some have suggested that it might be attributable to his drinking, but Craig went through that, and it seems like his drinking really started at a dangerous, damaging level. Late in his career and and probably wouldn't have produced such a, a steep and sudden drop off and then there's some suggestion that maybe it was an appendectomy he had and there was a, a more invasive surgery for appendectomies back then but that doesn't really fit the timeline either because he bounced back from that fine and, and was okay for a while. And then others have also suggested that it could be because he was pressed back into service as a catcher at a fairly advanced age, not having done that for a while, and then he played catcher like every day for a six-week stretch, and he got kind of banged up and possibly broke a toe, and maybe that took a toll. But again, he kind of bounced back at the beginning of the season after that, too, so it, it isn't really the smoking gun that it might seem. And Craig, doing the detective work that he often does, concluded that the most likely suspect or culprit here was a concussion. That Fox had suffered years earlier After the 1934 season Just before his 27th birthday He went on this touring team Of of barnstorming big leaguers And he got beaned He was facing the pitcher Barney Brown Who was a Negro leaguer And he got hit I think above the right ear And he went down And it was possibly retaliation For Fox having hit a home run Off of Brown earlier in that game And Wright mentioned That that kind of thing was probably more common In the Negro Leagues at the time The hit-by-pitch rate in the Negro Leagues Was like 75% higher than it was in the AL and NL at that time Hmm. But whatever the reason It's kind of classic concussion symptoms I mean, it it was described as a a mild thing at the time But it lingered for quite a while And he didn't play And then it seemed to progressively get worse over time And he had sinus issues and headaches And blurred vision and all kinds of concussion symptoms that we have seen subsequently end or shorten other players' careers, and maybe the severity of it wasn't quite realized at the time. But that's the kind of thing that it's not unknown. Like if you're a Jimmy Fox scholar, you know about that kind of thing but it's not something that you immediately see when you look at his baseball reference page. It's not like huge headline news about Jimmy Fox. Like you could read retrospectives of his career and not really know about it or recognize its significance. And that happens not even in a major league game, but that happens so often when I read Craig's newsletters and he will trace a player's career or season. And so often it seems like when a player slumped, Craig will find out, well, he actually fouled a ball off his toe or something, and he was limping around for a while, and it was reported in the papers at the time, right? But there's no real record of it otherwise, and so it's some day-to-day thing that the guy was playing through, or maybe he sat out for a while, and you could see that there's a gap in his game log, but you wouldn't necessarily know why. And that sort of thing is so prevalent, like not that every slump is related to an injury of some sort, but – Probably a lot of them are. I bet if we had perfect injury info, like if we knew every player's health every single day of the season, I bet that would explain... A lot of slumps like Not slumps due to random Batted ball luck of course but If you could correlate like here are When players were hitting the ball less hard And here's what we know about how exactly They were feeling that day And I think there have been some studies That have correlated injuries with exit speeds And that sort of thing but if we had that kind of Perfect injury information And you know we wouldn't have access to The state of mind of every player on every day And it could be psychological too Not just physical but I bet that That explains a lot of variation in performance that otherwise we just chalk up to randomness or luck because it's ultimately unknowable. And the further back you go in baseball, the less easy it is to find that information without doing a deep dive on, let's say, newspapers.com, which has made that kind of thing easier, but still not easy.
1: Well, and not accessible to like the average fan, right? Right. Even if you are inclined to that kind of research, it's you know, it's one more subscription that you have to have, right? Yeah, I think it would be great to have that kind of information. I think that we just we forget so much stuff. Like we think we're gonna have good recall on the effects that injuries have had, even on the guys who are active now whose, you know, injury histories are much easier to find, and some of which depending on the kind of injury they have are tracked in a database somewhere, but we don't remember. Remember that stuff we're going to forget. And then right. there are going to be guys whose careers we look back on and we're like, eh, I wonder what happened there. And then we'll move on and we won't have an appreciation for, you know, the different kinds of things that they had to grapple with over the course of a career. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I wish that it was was something that sat there. I mean, it's hard to know. It's just hard to know how big an impact it has. And for some guys, mm-hmm. I think it's really obvious, you know, and you're able to trace the moment of a decline or the end of a career to a particular injury it's like an obvious discrete intervention into their baseball timeline mm-hmm. but other guys it's harder but it give you a sense that would be great
0: mm-hmm. yep all right i just saw since we started recording that the atlantic league announced that they will be moving the mound back as oh. in back to where it was before. Oh, I was like, wait a 60 feet, six what? inches. Yeah, not, not back further <laughs> oh, from home plate, but they moved it back as in away from home plate by a foot in the second half of last season. Now they are moving it forward by a foot back to where it was. <laughs> I explained that extremely clearly, but <laughs> they'll be using the standard mound distance this season. And I'm kind of disappointed by that, actually, because I, I know there was a lot of consternation about health and using players as guinea. Pigs and would with players out their arms Etc but I talked to Some players and other people about that For a piece at the end of the season and it sounds Like it was a complete non-issue and That no one really complained about it After it went into effect and that there Wasn't any observable uptick in injuries Or anything there also wasn't any clear effect when it came to improving the offensive environment, really. Right. There were not really fewer strikeouts or anything. I think there were fewer whiffs, but it just it didn't produce the effect that... I was hoping and thinking that it would, but it was only a foot and it was only half of an Atlantic League season. And I was kind of hoping that there would be additional testing. And it sounds like there won't be, at least in that context, which I suppose means that there is an even greater need for lab leak.
1: Oh, yeah. We need lab leak. We need (laughs) lab leak. You know, what thought right. I you know what thought I had the other day, though. I was like, oh, maybe we should like we should design a logo for Lab League Ooh. and, you know, we could put it on like a hat or a T-shirt and people might want it who listen to this podcast. And then I was like, it would be hard to design a Lab League logo that doesn't invoke steroids. Right. That isn't like <laughs> evocative true, of that. So right. I've, you know, but I'm, you know, I'm still thinking on it because yeah. uh,
0: people would think it's Balco or Biogenesis. Right. Or something.
1: Right. This is the this is the gating factor around merch for Lab League, not for Lab League itself. Lab League lives right. forever, you know. But mm-hmm. yeah.
0: All right. Here are some emails, and this one, this first one, will be football related. So we will uh, need your help here, as okay. the more football educated among the two of us. <laughs> This is from Andrew, who says, There is an interesting scenario at play in the final weekend of the NFL season. Even I was aware of this. I became aware of football whether I wanted to or not because of this scenario. It was possible that the only way for both the Raiders and Chargers to make the playoffs following their Sunday night game to end the season was if they were to tie. Yeah. Of course, if either one of them had won, it would stand to make the playoffs. But if they had both tied, then they would have both made the playoffs and forced the Steelers out of the playoff pick. Andrew continues this led many To speculate we would have four quarters and an Overtime period where the two teams kneel The ball every play Field position complicates this slightly, but not enough so to nullify this as a sound strategy. Sadly, both coaches have said they will not use this strategy if the scenario were to occur. This email was sent before the game. And Andrew continues, This got me thinking that if MLB were ever to replace the zombie runner with a tie after X innings, eventually we may see a similar scenario where teams are incentivized to tie. Assuming a scenario where there is absolutely no upside to winning over a tie for both sides, how would you envision this working out on the field if teams actually tried to pull this off? More realistically, how do you think players, coaches, and front offices would respond to a situation like this? Baseball has taken huge steps in recent years, advancing optimal strategy with aesthetics be damned, but you have to think there is a limit, right?
1: Ben, I'm so sad that you don't like football (laughs) because— Watching that game and watching yeah. the end of that game was some of the most fun I've had watching sports in a very yeah. very long time. And I, I was rooting following
0: it vicariously. Through oh my god! Else.
1: And I was rooting. It was a fun scenario. I was rooting for a tie. I mean, first of all, I thought that the the idea that they were going to say up front, "Oh yeah, we're going to tie," was like, of course they're not going to do that, right? <laughs> right. They're not going to do that, even if even if at at certain points in the game they had gotten to a point where it's like, why don't we tie? Just because the the risk of something goofy happening is high enough that we should just take the clear path to the playoffs and tie and and you know let you know Ben Roethlisberger be sad at home. They were never gonna do that because like they're professional athletes. And mm-hmm. I would imagine that if you're a pro athlete, especially an NFL player where you're like, hey, you know how I get in a car crash every week at work and yeah. you know that might have some really serious long term implications for my health. I'm gonna do that in service of a tie. I would tell you to get lost if I were mm-hmm. a, an NFL player so it never seemed likely to me but it was the most fun I think that the incentives for ties though are very dangerous <laughs> because uh-huh. you don't want folks in the sport coming together and saying no we've we've predetermined the outcome of this contest because once you allow for that in a world where you are also heavily incentivizing people to gamble <laughs> it just it makes everybody nervous. It mm-hmm. it works in the back of your brain too actively going forward. So they were never gonna admit to like match fixing basically. <laughs> like they were never gonna do that because it would be Disastrous but I really wanted them To yeah. it so bad
0: Yeah and they came out and said like no We're not gonna, take we're not any gonna do anything that. like that right And it just ended up being So possible because right. it Was close it went to overtime
1: they were and, In fact tied
0: right the Raiders ultimately won 35 32 And I know there was a lot of confusion And consternation about yes. a timeout At the end which as I understand It from reading smart football People was overblown and Bill Barnwell at least suggested That that didn't matter so much. And there was kind of a confusing comment by one of the players in the immediate aftermath, which if you parsed it selectively suggested that the timeout had changed things and that really it hadn't to any great degree. And there were some incentives to win, like it did affect the amount of rest before the next game or your playoff seating or opponent, that sort of thing. So there were some stakes there. Bill concluded his article by saying the Raiders wanted to win given their playoff seeding possibilities, but they wanted to not lose more than anything. They got in a position in which it would have been virtually impossible to lose and then slowed things down to ensure that they would be the only team with a chance to win. The Chargers' only motivation was to avoid losing. When the game came down to one play, the Raiders overwhelmed the league's worst run defense to set up a season-ending right. field goal. The Chargers didn't lose because they poked the bear with a too cute timeout. They lost because they got overpowered by a more physical team with their season on the line. For all the modern external factors surrounding this game, that's the oldest, simplest football story in the book. So... I know it was sort of a letdown for a lot of people that this was not a tie and that the teams were not committed to a tie. And I'm sure that part of that is just the macho football, we're not going to concede everything we want to win kind of thing. And as you mentioned, maybe game fixing considerations as well. If this were to happen in baseball, obviously there are a lot more games and the implications of any single game are a lot lower but I think there would still be kind of a cultural resistance to the idea. I mean, there's a cultural resistance just to the idea of allowing ties <laughs> in baseball. Obviously, there's a big American, at least, bias against the very concept of finishing in a tie. Yeah, we don't like Which a lot like of people ties. regard as unsatisfying, right? And so if teams said, yeah, we decided to tie, we stopped trying at a certain point then I think that would be considered unsporting and people would look down on that and teams would probably be reluctant to say publicly that that's what they were doing, right? So I don't know if this is a way to make the zombie runner rule even worse. I don't know if that's possible, but I don't think we would really see teams acknowledging that they were trying to tie or didn't care about tying but might there be some situations where it made sense and you gave a less than full effort to win perhaps
1: i mean i could definitely see if you're you have the option for a tie and you have a completely different Like depleted bullpen, right? And you're, you know, you're worried about either compromising future games as a result of just continuing to throw more guys out there, or you're worried about injury. That, like, then a tie becomes more attractive because the payoff is a potential win later and you're like a tie is a tie and i think in baseball the impact of any given tie is going to be you know so much smaller like i had chatted with a couple members of our staff like is there a baseball version of this that you want to write about because i was so jealous of football (laughs) writers for having this to to write about i was like i would have bothered everyone all weekend we would have run content every day around this question right because it's just so cool it's cool to think about but i think that the circumstances under which an individual game is going to matter for Or making the playoffs, you know, those those tend to be few and far between in baseball. The potential for them exists every year. And we had some scenarios this year where like clearly it came down to the last day, but it tends to not be that. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the promise of a future win at the expense of a tie that's probably not going to end up moving the needle for you on a postseason on your postseason probabilities, like I think that there are times when a a team would take that trade-off. But I think you probably just try to win anyway you just try to win and so you'd say we don't need a system that allows for ties and incentivizes them because we just are gonna try to win a baseball game you know what i mean
0: Yeah, there are a lot of games with no playoff implications, especially toward the end of the season. I mean, you're either already out or you're already in. And yes, as you said, if, if teams are worried about stressing their bullpens, then maybe, maybe there would be cases. And I'm on record as saying I'd be fine with ties if it meant no zombie runner rule. Again, prefer just playing out the game the way that we used to, but I would rather have ties than zombie runner rule, I believe. But yeah, I think it might happen in Certain situations perhaps Yeah All right Eddie says The Los Angeles Lakers season Is in all sorts of disarray We're really starting out With other sports here On this episode This is fun With problems ranging From injured stars Bad offensive scheming And seemingly nobody On the roster Being able to defend When it matters With many attributing The last several iterations Of Lakers rosters To LeBron James's Extensive input Whether true or not He's receiving About as much blame As a general manager would For constructing A bad roster Mm. This has me thinking. What if baseball's largest stars had a similar level of authority in how their surrounding teams were built? More specifically, what if Mike Trout took charge in building out the rest of the Angels' Major League roster? Who would he look to acquire any specific changes with coaching? Would there be any major shakeup to begin with? I guess the Lakers are up to 500 these days, so good for them. But yeah, that is something that you don't see so much in baseball. There isn't as much of a player empowerment era, I suppose, and there isn't as much of a trend toward players just getting together with their friends to try to win a championship. And it's just harder to do in baseball than it would be in basketball. I think that's the big thing that stands out to me, like in basketball, it might even make sense to a certain extent because you only have a handful of guys on the floor, right. and you can't just plug and play anyone. No. Like you, you have to have some chemistry, and I don't mean just clubhouse chemistry, but it actually matters how players' skill sets match up with each other.
1: How they complement one another is meaningful in a way that is, I think, much more obvious and much more pervasive across the roster. Like There are definitely places where the chemistry between individual players on the diamond matters, but it's choppier. It's much choppier.
0: Right. And so if you're with Bron James, I mean— not only is it more important to you, probably who you are playing with, because it affects your game, but it should be probably the case that he has a bigger say in that than, say, Mike Trout would, just in the sense that his preferences or who he plays well or doesn't play well with might actually affect the team's fortunes to a greater degree. And he's like a huge part of the team, just percentage wise, right. in a way that Mike Trout isn't. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Basketball, or at least more sense. I'm not saying it is ideal to have players calling every shot necessarily because uh, they might still be prone to making certain mistakes that someone else might not be. But I'm just saying, like, you have to take into account an individual star much more than you do when you were constructing your roster. So if this were to happen in baseball, I don't know that there is really any great advantage to it. I mean, unless you have, you know, Zach Granke, who is reputed to be a great scout in his own right, for instance. Like, if you have a player who's really good at evaluating other players, sure— But otherwise, being a GM is a big job (laughs) and and a full-time job, more than a full-time job, frankly, as is being a Major League Baseball player. So I don't know that you would get much of an advantage from combining those things, especially because they're separate skill sets and players are worrying about their own games. They don't have an opportunity to see everyone else playing all the time. They don't necessarily have the background in statistical analysis to be able to evaluate numbers the way that an entire front office can. I'm not saying that they wouldn't have insights, but I'm just saying that often, you know, when you have player votes for awards or all-star selections or whatever, they don't always end up being the best players as we would evaluate value maybe we're not always right either but you know players will make judgments based on who they like and who they know and the small samples that they have seen etc so i don't think they're really all that well suited to construct rosters and sometimes you see that when players will advocate for a move to be made or not made. And sometimes it doesn't really seem to make sense on the surface and who knows from a clubhouse perspective, but yeah, I don't know that that's in most players wheelhouses just as being a player is not in most executives wheelhouses.
1: I do think the place where it could perhaps be meaningful, but it would constitute more of a collaboration than something as directed as what at least has been reported for LeBron when it comes to the Lakers is if Someone like Trout were able to be persuasive on payroll as a general concept and then how that payroll gets allocated is left to the the general manager and the, you know, the baseball ops team and scouts and what have you. So I could see an instance where, you know, if we lived in a world where Artie Moreno was going to listen to Mike Trout and Shohei Otani more on, hey, do we increase angels payroll from you know 172 million to 250 million like if they are the voice that is going to be able to move the needle there and i know that you know the way that the angels have spent has not been you know stingy although it it also hasn't always been super smart i think there you could end up having really meaningful impact where someone like trout goes in and says like so you know how i'm the best baseball player of my generation what if we Mm -hmm. spent like another 50 million dollars on pitching so that you could go to the postseason with me again Mm -hmm. the best baseball player of my generation and if that voice were able to sort of shift things around then i see it as as valuable i do think that players have like they do have some idea of who good players are i think that they are maybe slow to update their understanding of that right i think that when we see players rank other players i tend to be struck more by not that they identify guys who were never good but that they maybe identify guys who aren't as good anymore right like it's like he's not prime whatever he's you know it's time for a new do to be in this list so yeah I don't know I think that there could be some value there if they're like let's go win a world series why don't we and then they the front office is like thank you for that windfall we shall go do that to the best of our ability
0: Remember when Dallas Keuchel called out Jeff Lunau for not making the Astros better at the deadline or doing anything significant? And then that possibly precipitated Lunau making the Justin Verlander trade. Uh, It it at least put more public pressure on the team to make a big all-in move. And, you know, then they won a World Series. And there were some other things going on that year as well. But sure, that may have been a situation where uh, a player publicly saying, hey, let's go for it here. You know, let's give up some prospects. And, again, that's, I think, the problem because players would 100% every time give up all of the prospects. (laughs) Like, there's probably a a middle ground because, like, players – maybe they don't know the prospects and maybe they don't care about how good the prospects will be years down the road because they're no longer going to be with that team. Probably doesn't matter to them. So they'll be like, yeah, sure. Trade all our blue chippers to go get this veteran because I've heard of this veteran and because I want to win now. Right. So you need, I think some perspective that a player doesn't necessarily always have understandably, but You also need the perspective of the player to be like, hey, let's go for it. We've got a good group of players here. We could actually win this thing. So let's not sit on our prospects too, because this year might matter. So there's a bit of a middle ground there. Yeah, for sure. All right. While we're talking about the angels, as we so often are, we got a question about Shohei Otani, who was profiled this week in GQ. And yes, of course, I read the profile and I studied all of the photos in the photo spread with great interest. Nick patreon supporter says in shohei otani's recent gq profile in response to a question about what he'd change about the game otani responded honestly i'm satisfied with everything (laughs) no need to make any drastic changes nick says with respect to on-field baseball i totally agree as a proud baseball evangelist i will happily disagree with anyone who says that baseball is boring or dying or for old people etc 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 but off the field, there are lots of things to change about baseball, and Otani's answer was unqualified. My question is Do you think Otani got a call from the MLBPA over this quote? It cannot be good for the union when the face of the game says, all good, in the middle of a lockout negotiation. Is this a downside to Otani's unflagging optimism?
1: I understood this question to be about the game itself and not the ecosystem in which the game operates. Like that was I how yeah. I read that quote. I mean, maybe that is a generous reading on my part. I struggle to think that a guy who, well, I guess we could we could interpret this a couple of different ways and have sort of evidence from Otani's own career as as proof that our interpretation is correct. I mean, on the one hand, If anyone is going to be aware of how the existing system tends to take advantage of players who want to play in the majors and perhaps does not compensate them up to their worth, we might look to Otani as someone who fits that bill, right? Because Mm -hmm. of when he signed in the international market, you know, he was subject to, he received far less than he would have if there had just been open bidding, right? Yep. So there's that part of Otani. But also, he really wanted to play baseball here, and he was willing to sort of take that trade off, I think in part because he was probably cognizant of the fact that he was just going to make a bunch of money in sponsorships. And so it wasn't as if all he was going to take home was the salary he receives from the Angels. So I don't know, maybe if we want to be less generous to him, we could say that he perhaps isn't prioritizing these things the way that other members of the union might. But I just read this as him being like, baseball rocks, like as a sport. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't think that it necessarily means that he looks at the way that the the rest of it is constituted and it's like, I am perfectly happy with how international amateurs are treated and also right. domestic amateurs and, yeah. you know, like, I I read it as being about the game because he- I did
0: too. Yeah.
1: He, he likes it. He's enthusiastic about it and I think that a, a player of- his stature like i i mean in a figurative sense but also like literally cuz he's just so tall a guy who is the face of baseball who has managed to start to sort of cross the divide from you know enthusiasts for the game to more casual fans of sports generally i think him saying like baseball's great we should all love this sport cuz it's so awesome is mm-hmm. is good for the sport i think that that is a a positive thing to have sort of an unapologetic booster for the game and one who is able to do such remarkable things when he plays it that's to baseball's benefit and I hope that he has more opportunities to to talk about himself and the, the sport and the league and you know he does have a big platform so if he looks around and feels that other parts of the the economics or the environment are wanting. I hope he'll use his platform to talk about those things because that's important too. But yeah, I mostly just read it as he's like, "I I think baseball's rad and so are sweater vests.
0: <laughs> the sweater vests look fantastic. They always do, but on him especially. Yeah, I mean, we don't know how the question was posed to him. Right. And of course, there's the translation issue. We yeah. don't know exactly how he said it or what was said to him, etc. But I read it that way too. I still think it's funny that he is probably the first time in the history of baseball discourse to be asked how he would change the game and say, well, you know no notes. (laughs) It's great. I think it's perfect the way it is. So, I mean, I don't know that anyone has ever said that. Even uh, people who love baseball always have some suggestion for how it could be different, right? And maybe he just doesn't want to wade into those waters and rock the boat in kind of a puff piece profile. And again, we don't know exactly how this question was posed to him. Certainly, baseball is uh, working out well for him. (laughs) I mean, maybe not Financially as well as it could Although he has a lot of endorsement deals But uh, he has dominated it In a way that no one else did So if I were Shohei Otani I don't know that I would want anything to change either Right. But it is kind of nice Because the article was Kind of pushing the, you know, baseball is dying, baseball is broken, we need Shohei Otani to be the savior angle. And I kind of like that he was like, no, you know, it's fun. (laughs) It's fine the way it is. Like, uh, I think it's not a disaster. And he also pointed out in the piece that while baseball's popularity may have declined in the United States, it is still wildly popular elsewhere in the world. And that baseball is more than Major League Baseball. So it was nice to hear from him directly, or as directly as we can, given the language barrier. But you know, I doubt that he was uh, getting any angry emails from the MLBPA about this.
1: Yeah, I doubt it. I also really liked that in the video that accompanied this, they just let him speak Japanese and then they right. subtitled mm-hmm. it because I think you know can all get more comfortable with that and engage with guys sort of as they are. And I don't know. I just I thought the whole thing was. Well done. I thought it was Mm -hmm. quite well
0: done. Yep. Always happy to hear from Shohei. All right. Here is a question from Jacob. Well, this might depress you (laughs) more than you are already. But Jacob says, and this was sent prior to the labor meeting on Thursday, what if for some reason they never decided to negotiate and the lockout stretched in perpetuity? How long would it take fans to give up hope, players to seek new jobs? How long would you continue to do the podcast until you moved on to other things? You were certainly able to fill the airtime when there hasn't been baseball during the pandemic. So how many episodes could you keep making before you ran out of content with no new baseball to cover? I certainly hope this doesn't happen, but I thought it might be an interesting hypothetical to entertain nonetheless. Interesting hypothetical. When will Meg be unemployed? How long would that take? <laughs> I
1: need to go back to therapy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I am still kind of of the mind that baseball viewership and sort of engagement has not totally recovered from the pandemic year. Mm-hmm. And we got baseball that year. So if we lost baseball entirely for this season, particularly if the context for losing it is not... A global pandemic, which I think people would understand if, you know, we had gotten to the point where we had said this isn't safe to do, but it's because of an inability to reach a labor deal in a sport that's incredibly lucrative. I think it would be damaging in a pretty profound way. You know, I don't imagine that we would, I I know, I understand the spirit of the question, but like, I don't imagine we would never have baseball again, but I think that we would have given up really important sort of cultural space if we did that how long could we go i don't know ben (laughs) i don't know how long we could go i don't want to find out i'm kind of keen to not have an answer a like firm answer for this question yeah but i think that one of the things that both parties to this negotiation have to keep in mind is that you know there's a lot of other stuff in the world like we we did on our most recent ask us anything episode for for patreon supporters like we talked about all of the things that we had consumed in 2021 that we enjoyed or rather some of the things because there were so many things that we listened to and read and watched that really moved us and we found compelling and you know i think that baseball has a pretty big lead but it is always pushing up against other interests that people have and i think that you know if we were to lose an entire season to a lockout it would it would leave a pretty lasting and profound bad taste in people's mouths and the last time we had something like that like everybody had to start using steroids before we got over it so <laughs> i'm not keen on that as a solution either so i hope that you know we we can get our acts together and do do what's right for the sport and uh and not have to test the theory because we used up so much material when we had 2020 and you know <laughs> at some point we'll we'll run out of something to say even even when we get weird so I don't know yeah. man
0: yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of baseball history. So in right. theory, we could continue the podcast indefinitely. I mean, <laughs> we could talk about baseball for the rest of our lives, even if there were no new baseball. There's sure. been hundreds of years of baseball. Would the podcast be entertaining? Would anyone still be listening? Would our hearts be in it? No, I don't think so. There would probably still be people doing historical research into baseball. People would still be using baseball data to investigate other things. I mean, there would be some amount of baseball news happening, or at least new fodder to discuss. And of course, there would be an almost infinite number of potential past topics. But I don't know. I don't want to put a time on it because I I don't even want to speak it into existence. Not that I believe that I could or that this will happen. But, you know, we have made it through most of a a winter here with no news, with a lockout. We made it through, what, a few months last summer when nothing was happening except uh, players and owners sniping at each other, right? And if, let's say, we lost this entire season— and then we went into next winter with the lockout still in place or something, you know, maybe we wouldn't record three times a week. Right. <laughs> and it takes a lot for me to say that, as you know, <laughs> but yeah. I think we would be entitled to walk it back and, and dial it down a little bit at yeah. that point. And how long it would take for us to give up the ghost entirely, I'd like to think that, you know, we would every now and then convene to talk a little bit on this feed about baseball in some context, even if there were no new baseball for the rest of our lives. I mean, those of us who came of age during a time when there was baseball would still continue to Care about baseball and miss baseball And maybe want to remember Some guys every now and then right And so we could get together To do that I think but you would Not be making any new fans if There were no new baseball for years And years and no prospect of new Baseball I think that's really the Question like when does it go from Okay this is a work stoppage but it's Going to be resolved to this is never going to be resolved. Baseball is over <laughs> because, or at least at that baseball point...
1: here is over, right?
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, yes, pro baseball it, it would here. Continue elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, we could pivot the podcast to being NPB and KBO and who knows what else, right? Yeah. We could talk about foreign leagues that would still be going on, but the podcast in its current form, I want to say we could. Get through a, an entire season without baseball probably as long as we expected there to be baseball sometime soon. Like, yeah. I think that's part of it is like how long is the blackout period that we know of? You know, right. if you told us that there's no new baseball and no new baseball news for the next year – That would be a daunting prospect to continue to podcast. But if there were always the hope that there was about to be baseball, if they kept dangling the carrot in front of our faces – then I think we could probably keep talking for a while. I mean, I enjoy some of the shows that we've been able to do during the lockout that don't rely on current events or anything particularly timely or topical. There are a lot of interesting subjects that I'm glad that we've had the opportunity to delve into. And I don't feel like we're necessarily on the verge of running out. But I think it's really about what the expectation is for when baseball would return.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that the sort of endless or potentially endless, you know, drag would be a real problem. Right. If the Mm -hmm. if it if it operates like the horizon and it's always moving away from you, it's like, oh, I don't know. (laughs) Right. So.
0: Yeah. And as for players, I mean, players, you know, after a certain number of years would age out essentially. And some of them can afford to not work or some would have to pursue second careers and I guess working in baseball or at least Major League Baseball would not be an avenue open to them. It would be weird because there would continue to be talented amateurs, right? You'd still have Little League you'd still have high school and college presumably unless like the absence of Major League Baseball just disincentivized anyone to play at those levels too. I mean would you have less participation in Little League because there's no MLB to get people hooked Or to give people dreams That they could one day play there Maybe you'd see some decline in participation But I think probably for the most part People play baseball and softball because it's fun To play baseball and softball right Right. so I don't think they would disappear And so you'd still have talented Players coming up but they would have to play overseas or really ultimately at a certain point you'd form a new league right? Yeah. I mean if MLB just decides we're not going to play then at a certain point you would see some sort of players league spring yep. up right which Emma Bachelor just wrote about at Sports Illustrated or a federal league or an indie league would suddenly get all the best players I mean probably we would just pivot from major league baseball to whatever the new highest level domestic league is where probably most of the most talented players would gravitate to after a certain amount of time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I imagine that after a while, there would be something that came and sort of filled the void. And then the question would be sort of what caliber of player can that attract? Because, you know, you have guys who maybe say, I want to keep playing baseball and I've earned enough and I can take less to go to a new league. And you might have guys who say... Yeah, I can go do something else and and make more money or the same amount of money like the economics of it I imagine would matter there too I'm skeptical that we would get like <laughs> it's like oh finally I'm free from the shackles of MLB and I've gone to a league with better owners question <laughs> mark like <laughs> I don't know that that would necessarily satisfy in the way that that we would want it to but yeah I don't know it's a weird It's a weird weird bit of business, but...
0: Yeah, hopefully one that we will not be able to answer definitively. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. A different Jacob says, I was looking through the career war of some of the greatest catchers of all time, and they seemed low to me. For example, according to Baseball Reference War, the highest-ranking catcher is Johnny Bench at 80th all-time with a career war of 75.1. I think most people can agree that Bench is better than the 80th best player of all-time. Is this a result of not having a good grasp on catcher defensive value, framing, staff, ERA, etc.? Is there a better comprehensive stat that can be used to describe catcher value?
1: Well, part of the, the thing that I think is useful for folks to remember here is that, like, B-Ref's version of catcher war does not include framing. Mm-hmm. So that is going to be, for a lot of these guys, is going to make up a... a uh, potentially quite meaningful bit of the right. gap.
0: And neither does fan graphs were prior to the pitch FX era, right? And neither does Correct. baseball prospectus warp prior to 1988 and right. the advent of pitch by pitch data. So right. yeah, we can't go back as far with some of these stats.
1: Right. And so that's going to be a big piece of it. I think that with that sort of adjustment in mind it's still i don't know i still think that war is a useful metric for catchers obviously i'm gonna be biased toward the versions of war that are able to to the extent we can account for the value of framing Mm -hmm. because we know how valuable framing is for teams it will be interesting to see sort of how how that evolves you know there's there's been a a real compression in terms of the framing skill within the guys who make it to the majors and sort of stick there, right? So since we have an understanding of how valuable this is, you don't, you don't have as many butchers back there as you used to. So there's that part of it. And then obviously we're going to have a number of catchers whose value sort of flips and changes once we get a robo zone so how we account for this stuff is going to be changing over time which i don't know i get why people are fussed by that i think war always changes i mean it doesn't constantly change just to be clearly everyone (laughs) it's fine but like it's an evolving stat right and stats evolve over time so i think that it's still the best composite stat available and then for the guys who you know we don't have good framing data on we're kind of left to rely on how how reputation might supplement our understanding of their game mm-hmm. and i think that we need to allow that there's a big part of catching value that we still can't account for in war mm-hmm. right we still don't have a good way of of quantifying the value of game calling in war so i think that catcher war is probably among the the most incomplete in terms of what it can encompass even though it is much more complete now than it used to be i don't know mm-hmm. how do you feel yep. about catcher war Yeah, I think it's okay. I think
0: that, yes, if we were able to quantify all aspects of catcher performance going back to the beginning of baseball, then some catchers' wars would be higher and some would be lower. You don't know which way it would necessarily go for the best ones, but probably you would have someone higher than the current highest if you could quantify all of that. But I think it is largely a product of playing time. I think that's the big difference between catcher and other positions. Just compared to players who play less demanding defensive positions, catchers tend to take more time off, and they have shorter careers, and then there's the wear and tear that can take a toll on their offense. And Johnny Bench, he played a long time for a catcher. But he still has only about as many career plate appearances as, say, Scott Rowland. Right. He has... Uh, Almost a thousand plate appearances Fewer than Todd Helton And those are two players People knock for not being durable sometimes And he is quite durable by catcher standards So I think for Hall of Fame purposes And career valuation purposes You kind of have to compare catchers to themselves Like the Jaws averages for catcher Are significantly lower Than they are for other positions So that's just the way it is And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're less valuable it just might mean that they have shorter careers and they take more days off and everything so that just kind of comes with the territory
1: Right. Yeah, I think that part of the job of folks who write about baseball and use advanced stats is to help the folks reading about them to understand that context and and sort of put it in perspective. It's part of why I think, you know, Jay's work on Jaws and the Hall of Fame is so valuable because you're able to view those guys not only within the context of baseball, but within the context of their specific position and understand sort of what is Hall of Fame caliber given that position. And I know that for some positions like dh and reliever people's mileage can vary on on that but in general i think that the stat is always the starting point and then you use that stat to help tell the story and that almost always involves greater context than what we are able to have encompassed in that number and -hmm. you know for dhs and relievers you're having one context and for catchers another and you're right that like playing time is a huge part of that and and then we have to acknowledge the things that we either can't quantify yet, or have been only recently able to quantify, and and try to tell as complete a story as we can. So,
0: mm-hmm. all right, I have two more here on my sheet. Jeremy Patreon. I think this will probably be quick I suspect we will agree I was recently reading Joe Posnanski's Baseball 100 article About Frank Robinson's historic first year As player manager of Cleveland It got me thinking about player managers Do you think we will ever see player managers again Especially as front offices More and more script on-field decision making Or even look to cut costs I know Ben has personal experience with a player manager Through Phelan Lentini with the Stompers What did he learn of the positives and negatives About player managers Do you think baseball is the sport most amenable to having players Managers, or might player managers fare better in other sports? Who is baseball's best or most successful player manager? What position would make the best player manager? Would it be too hard if you were the catcher? There are more questions about player managers here, but I think we can just primarily answer the first one here, which is Will we see or should we see another player manager? And I don't believe there's been one since Pete Rose. I think his last season as player manager was 1986, which was just before I was born. So there has not been a player manager in my lifetime. And I don't expect that there will be. No,
1: I don't think there will be either, especially because of all of the it, it's like uh, there's so much work. right? Like what yep. what a manager does on the field is obviously a big part of their job. But there's so much stuff that they have to do away from that. And the idea that they're going to be able to do that and then also do the work to be a really good baseball player seems Seems like there's just not enough time. Like we only yeah. have the the 24 hours in the day. So
0: mm-hmm. yeah, I don't see the advantage really. And Mm-mm. Jeremy makes a a good point about the job and responsibilities of managers changing, and to some extent, some duties have been taken out of their hands, but. I just still don't think it makes sense. And I think, if anything, we are seeing increasing specialization. We are seeing the expansion of coaching staffs, right? We're seeing teams that will have 12 or 13 major league coaches, right? So I don't think we are heading toward a world where you are going to say, we don't need a manager anymore or a separate manager. We'll just make this player the manager. I just don't really see the benefit unless you think that, there is some greater leadership impact, or it's better for the clubhouse to have a manager be the player, but I don't think that's the case. I think no. it puts players in awkward positions yes. to be the manager, to have to fill out the lineup and make bullpen changes, yep. and how do you even make Four or five pitching changes a game if you're playing second base at the same time or something. I mean, there's just so much going on and there's just no need to do it. I don't think there's much more of an emphasis on player development at the major league level. And you can't really be responsible for developing other players if you're worrying about yourself. It's There's just no need. I think I, I think it makes sense that baseball has gone away from this and I can't imagine it going back in the other direction.
1: Yeah, I can't either. I mean, like the the HR component of being a manager just by itself, I think precludes it from being a double up anymore right. <laughs> because like you said, like p- who you put in the lineup, you know, your ability to sort of mediate conflict within the clubhouse when you are a member of the clubhouse, I think is just it's it's possible, but you would have to work really hard to have that be true and there's no reason to require a player to do it. So mm-hmm. just like have a Have a skipper. Plus, I need to call someone Skip. It's great.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah, Jeremy baited me with his last question, which was, if Shohei can pitch and hit, do you think we will ever again see someone play and manage I didn't think we would see someone do what Shohei did, so I suppose it's within the realm of possibility. It's, it's probably more feasible to be a player manager than it is to do what Otani did, <laughs> so you could do it. Yeah. I just don't think you would be as good at either job, and that touches on the Stompers experience, and that I don't know if that was predictive of anything in particular, but it certainly seemed as if being the manager took a toll on Feilant, too, who we hired for the team we signed for the team and thought he was going to be way too good for that league because he had before and subsequently played at a high level even in the Atlantic League which is the highest level of indie ball and this was the Pacific Association and he kind of had a down year statistically for him judging by his performance in surrounding seasons and Maybe it was because Sam and I were bugging him all the time, (laughs) but I think it was also probably because he had that responsibility. And I don't know that he loved that or embraced it or pursued it subsequently. So again, I just think the more you can take off a player's plate and just let them focus on their on-field performance, the more everyone will benefit.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's funny though, because if anyone would be able to do it in terms of their ability to sort of manage different constituencies within the clubhouse. I would imagine a two-way player is best set up to do that, right? Because they can speak with credibility to the position players and pitchers. But it's like, you know, two jobs is, that's a lot of jobs for a a big leader to do. Three sounds like far too many jobs. So I I tend to think that we won't see this again, but I don't, everyone does like Otani seemingly. He seems to be quite popular in that clubhouse. Mm So yeah you know i can i think that the the people part of it is there but the feasibility is still is still lacking so
0: yes Alright, last question. This is about a bit of baseball news that uh, was announced recently that the Orioles are making some changes to the configuration of Camden Yards. Matt says, I recently came across an interesting post in conversation in the Orioles subreddit that sparked an Effectively Wild style question. Could a team construct a competitive roster advantage by manipulating their park dimensions? How often could they deploy the strategy and still realize an advantage? In a recent message to season ticket holders, the Orioles notified affected fans that for the start of the 2022 season the distance from home plate to the left field wall will be pushed back as much as 30 feet in varying increments at different points in the wall and the height will raise approximately 5 feet by pushing back the left field wall We've created a playing field that is fair For both pitchers and hitters One of the top comments makes this observation Great move by Orioles GM Michael Elias Load up on left-handed pitching prospects And kill the right-handed batter's alley In left field Another commenter observes that the Orioles have an upcoming crop Of speedy outfielders who can handle the larger dimension The implication is that a GM Can collect players and prospects Who may not suit the current park effect But then later make strategic changes to the ballpark dimensions That better suit the constructed roster I know teams already construct rosters With stadium effects in mind But are there other examples of teams constructing rosters With prospective stadium effects in mind Or otherwise manipulating park conditions To suit a specific lineup Do you think that what the Orioles are doing Actually coincides with roster rebuilding or is it just coincidental and a long-needed change? And for that matter, are there any limits on how often a team could tweak its stadium dimensions? I recognize that it's easier for the Orioles to change seating layouts since most seats are empty anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: I hope Baltimore gets it together because I feel so bad. We, uh, You guys have Richmond. That part's great, but man, it can be kind of—and Mullins, Cedric Mullins, like, You're great. Mm-hmm. That's great. I don't think that there's any rule— that I'm aware of about how often they're like legally allowed to change their layouts. I do think that the seating and season ticket holder thing is a meaningful consideration for a lot of clubs. I think the roster construction piece does matter. I mean, there's a reason we don't see it very often, I think, in part because it costs money and you don't want to displace people and you want to have a an idea of what your ballpark dimensions are going to be uh, in advance. I do wonder if teams are perhaps more open to more frequent shifting of their dimensions now because the unknown of the ball is such that they are maybe just like, yeah, what are we like? Mm -hmm. Like, who knows what we're going to get? It could be crazy. It could be nothing. Like, I I wonder if there is an openness to that that is more meaningful now that we have such fluctuation in ball performance. But then again, maybe that makes them less open to change because it just introduces yet another variable. And so why move things around and and make things Mm -hmm. more complicated for yourself? I don't know. I I feel like we see the right amount of dimension change like we don't see mm-hmm. it often but we know we don't never see it I think it's yeah. fine I don't know I I can't get terribly fussed about this I know that people had like a lot of jokes about this you know uh, affecting Particular Yankee sitters um, But <laughs> right. apart from that I don't I don't really I don't know I don't get overly Fussed about the dimension thing because we Don't have a lot of super Extreme dimensions left Like I think that we've mm-hmm. kind of yes m- Migrated it has to become th-
0: much more standardized over Yeah time.
1: we've kind of migrated to the median On a lot of this stuff so mm-hmm. I, I Don't I think that's part of why we don't See a lot of change Because it's just uh, you know it's Not <laughs> there's not A lot of change left to be had
0: Yeah I get the sense That if anything the recent Park dimensions changes have skewed toward Making parks more hitter friendly Yeah I haven't checked that But just the ones that immediately Come to mind like Petco Or like Marlins Park or Lone Shark Park or whatever we're calling it these days I think those were (laughs) trying to Help the hitters out a bit And this one is the opposite. And it is merited in the sense that if they want a more balanced version of baseball, well, Camden Yards has been pretty unbalanced, at least according to the StatCast park factors. Over the past three years, it has been the second Homer happiest park behind Great American, I think. And last year, if you look at single year park factors, it was far and away the most homer inflating park In the majors and you know The Orioles did a lot of homer Inflating themselves with their pitching right. staff But yeah. in theory this should Account for a lot of that I mean I don't think this change will be significant Enough to make the Orioles uh, A run preventer I think they will need to actually have Some good pitchers to do that and, right. and they do Have some good pitchers on the way And maybe part of this is that they don't want Grayson Rodriguez and Their other top pitching prospects to to encounter this Homer happy park where they'll feel bad about giving them up lots of home runs. But of course, you will also hurt some of your position players, and they've done a decent job of developing those. The only rule I know of is that I don't believe you're allowed to change your dimensions in season. Yes. Which I think goes back to. Bill Veck, or at least Bill Veck claimed that it went back to him changing outfield dimensions like by the series within a season just based on what the opponent was for that given game. And the league did not take kindly to that and outlawed it almost immediately. So I think you are frozen once you start the season. But as far as I know, you could change it every season if you wanted to. Yeah, As you said, obviously, there are obstacles to that. And moving a fence, I mean, this is no joke. I mean, 30 feet in some parts, like, that's pretty significant. And I'm actually kind of disappointed because – Camden Yards has been the best home run robbery park, largely because of those seven-foot outfield fences, which are just the perfect height to rob homers, right? And so to have at least a portion of the fence raised from seven feet to 12 feet probably means that we'll see fewer opportunities for home run robberies. So that's sort of sad. But as for whether you can actually give yourself a competitive advantage here. I'm skeptical, I guess, about how well you could predict the conditions, the yeah. ball, and your roster yes. in advance to tailor this to your strengths yes. or to diminish some of the weaknesses. I guess the best example that comes to my mind is one that involves friend of the show, former podcast guest Dan Evans, who, when he was just out of college at the end of the 1982 season, he was working for the White Sox as a newly hired full timer. And Harold Baines told him that he thought That the White Sox had been hitting more balls That died on the warning track than their opponents And Dan Evans went around and other players agreed And at the time, the White Sox had this early system That they used to chart balls in play, for instance It was like an Apple IIe that Dan <laughs> Evans would lug around And chart all the batted balls and all the mm, matchups and everything And would give you this rudimentary you know, spray charts and splits And things that we take for granted now But back then only the White Sox had or only a couple of teams had and that seemed to confirm Baines's and other players observation that the White Sox had been on the losing end of that equation there and they ran the numbers and they studied the wind and all of those things and they ended up actually moving the fence or not moving the fence, they actually like moved the entire field, which was easier to do at Kamiski at that point. And so it was like a eight feet less difference, I think, from home plate to the outfield, at least certain parts of the outfield. And it seemed to pay off, and who knows what would have happened otherwise, but the 1983 White Sox were way better and won a ton more games and went to the playoffs and hit a ton of home runs, and there was a a good MLB.com article about that recently that I will link to, but that was an example of looking at – Results from that season and the current construction of the roster and seeing that there might be an advantage or at least less of a disadvantage to changing. And it seemed to have the intended effect, at least in the short term. So... There's some precedent for that. And, you know, I'm sure that the Orioles wouldn't be doing this if they didn't think it would benefit them in some way. So I suppose they've run the numbers and they've looked at their roster and they've looked at the players that they have coming up and tried to do some long term analysis there. But I think it's complicated. There are a lot of different factors that you would have to project. So it might just be as simple as hey, we don't want an extreme number of home runs to be hit in our park.
1: Right. Right. I think that that's, you know, the safest move when you're not able to predict with certainty year-to-year variation in the ball and you're not able to know exactly how many of your prospects are going to pan out is to move towards something that is mild and in the middle because it's the easiest to navigate around.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. So, All right. Thanks for the questions. We can wrap up here. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. Some details about MLP's proposal to the union have trickled out since we started recording this episode, but it sounds as if the takeaway was what we thought at the time, which is that this is incremental changes. We can discuss some of the specifics at the start of next episode, but I'm sure you know where to find those reports. If you're interested in reading them now, I will include a link on the show page. A little more recommended reading. We talked earlier today about LeBron James and the differences between NBA and MLB players in terms of the percentage of a roster that they make up. One Jeff Sullivan wrote a fun post for FanCrafts back in 2014 called Let's Imagine a Baseball Playing LeBron James, in which he went through a thought experiment of how good a baseball player would have to be to make the same impact on a roster in a season that LeBron James does over the course of an NBA season, and he found that it's essentially impossible But following along as he reached that conclusion was a lot of fun, so I'll link to that as well. And finally, thanks to everyone who wrote in to tell us that Georgia head coach Kirby Smart brought up the burning the boat story. He used it to motivate his players to win a college football championship over Alabama. Those of you who have read The Only Rules It Has to Work and who go way back with the podcast may recall... That that became a podcast meme and book meme because of how common it is for especially head coaches, seemingly, although people in all walks of life, to tell the story about Hernán Cortez burning the boats, motivating his soldiers by essentially telling them that there was nowhere else to go. They couldn't retreat. There are all sorts of problems with that narrative, but it doesn't seem to stop people from repeating it over and over and over again. It's amazing how much mileage college coaches especially seem to get out of burning the boats. Not as big a thing in baseball, although it has come up from time to time. But it is gratifying that some of you remember, I don't know, five, six-year-old topics and will still inform us when something relevant occurs you can support effectively wild on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild and pledging some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going and get yourself access to some perks while helping us stay ad free michael kim has done so so has andy as have just asking 27 matt thompson and sandy Cantor. thanks to all of you and of course, get access to the exclusive Effectively Wild Patreon Discord group, as well as bonus monthly Patreon-only podcasts. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You don't even have to be a Patreon supporter to do that, nor do you have to to write to me and Meg via email at podcastfangraphs.com, although you can also send us a message via Patreon if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, you can join the Effectively Wild subreddit at r effectivelywild and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance, and we will be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you then.